You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Emails flood.gov inboxes. A retooled version of Locky Ransomware is out in the wild. The shadow brokers seem to have some NSA goods. The brokers themselves are thought to be either Russian spies or rogue insiders or some mix of both. Worries about U.S. election hacking rise. More companies are concerned about insider threats. We'll chat with Chris Fogel from Delta Risk about security concerns and responsibilities for members of the boardroom and C-suite. Then, yes, there's another Pokemon Go hack. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary and weekend review for Friday, August 19th, 2016. Breaking overnight was a story about a flood of emails clogging inboxes of people with .gov addresses. According to some observers, the emails, mostly newsletters the recipients didn't sign up for, amount to a denial-of-service operation. The problem is beginning to manifest itself outside the .gov domain, according to Brian Krebs, who's been reporting on the incident. Krebs himself has been getting newsletters he'd rather do without. FireEye reports that a new, freshly retooled Locky ransomware variant is out in the wild. The vectors are macro-enabled Office 2007 Word documents. Healthcare organizations are again being hit hardest, and both sides of the Pacific are affected. Infestations have been reported in the United States, Japan, Korea, and Thailand. This week's big news, of course, is the apparent compromise of sensitive NSA files. Consensus is that the material leaked by the shadow brokers is genuine. The files they've released are ostensibly a teaser in a half-billion-dollar online auction for even more interesting stuff the shadow brokers claim to have in their possession. But this seems implausible. The auction isn't really set up in such a way as to inspire confidence among the bidders, and in any case, half a billion and change is a bit steep, even for wealthy elite, as the shadow brokers are calling their ideal customers. Kaspersky thinks the encryption implementation in the files is sufficiently unusual to tie them to the Equation Group, a threat actor Kaspersky hasn't identified, but which is widely believed to be an NSA operation. Other evidence suggesting the leak is genuine include zero days for firewalls and other security products. Cisco and Fortinet have confirmed that the zero days in the leak are genuine, and they've already issued patches. Juniper Networks is evaluating the purported zero days in its own products, and observers think those will turn out to be real as well. So, with cases like this, spectators always want to know who done it. The preeminent suspects in this case are Russian intelligence services. A lot of people, including, oddly enough, Edward Snowden, think the Russians were behind the leaks. 
Snowden's speculation, shared over Twitter and seconded by others, is that the Russian services may have access files inadvertently left behind on an equation group staging server. The timing of the incident also seems suspect, coming as it does on the heels of Russian incursions into the U.S. Democratic National Committee and other political targets. It's worth noting that the later stages of those incursions became noisy and relatively obvious, as if being detected might serve the attacker's purposes. Publication of the files may be intended to dissuade U.S. retaliation for the DNC hack. Passcode quotes Immunities CTO Dave Itell to this effect, quote, We talk a lot about cyber deterrence. This is what it looks like, end quote. This incident, following as it does compromises at the DNC, the DCCC, and the Clinton Foundation, and prominent Republicans' accounts, has increased fears that the upcoming U.S. elections are vulnerable to disruption or manipulation. But a lot of other people think those responsible were disgruntled insiders who walked out with the files on a USB drive, the way Snowden walked out with his leaks. There is material on the files released so far that observers think unlikely to have been found exposed on a staging server, or indeed anywhere else susceptible to hacking. This, they say, suggests an insider. And of course, a disgruntled or compromised insider could have worked with Russian intelligence, so the two hypotheses aren't mutually incompatible. Insider threats cropped up elsewhere this week. An employee of Sage, the accounting and business software provider, was arrested at London's Heathrow Airport Wednesday in connection with a large data breach affecting between two and 300 Sage customers in the UK. The breach was accomplished by abuse of insider credentials. Recent studies suggest that companies are uneasy with respect to their ability to detect and protect themselves from insider threats. Matthew Raven, CMO at Balabit, commented to the Cyberwire on trends in insider threats. Quote, the problem with insider breaches is that so many of the preventative technologies that companies have spent millions on are powerless to detect malicious activity once the user has been authenticated. End quote. He sees enterprises reposing too much faith in password management systems and notes that once privileged users log on, they've too often got unrestricted access to sensitive data. Quote, privileged users pose a serious threat to every company, and passwords just aren't effective, end quote. He pointed to a recent survey by SailPoint that found one in five employees saying they'd be willing to sell their work passwords, some for as little as $150. And of course, this week has seen more news about Pokemon Go than Ash Ketchum or any other trainer would like to see. Adaptive Mobile reported finding a large Pokemon SMS spam campaign, and Plixer's Thomas Poor offers this commentary to the Cyberwire. Quote, With Pokemon Go being the fastest-growing game ever, until popularity severely declines, we can expect to see villains hacking various attacks. Gamers need to be wary that with popularity comes the potential for cybercrime. End quote. In particular, Poor sensibly warned gamers that anything that looks too good to be true is, and to be wary of phishing scams, whether they came by email or SMS. Quote, With recent news of Pokemon Go ransomware, it's unlikely that attacks against the trainers will subside anytime soon. End quote. Finally, we need to point out that whatever the evidence for Russian involvement in the Shadow Brokers incident, broken English isn't among it. The shadow brokers sound far more like a screenwriter's lazy idea of a Hollywood foreigner than they do any known version of non-native English speaker. Our linguistic staff called it more Hakawi than Fancy Bear, but we have heard from a listener, JB we'll call her, who pointed out that the shadow brokers sound a lot like the Incredible Hulk, although of course a lot more verbose than the ever-loving Hulk ever was. 
Our linguistic staff has been doing some thinking, and they think JB may actually be Natalia Romanova, a.k.a. the Black Widow. Who else would be so quick to recognize the voice of the Hulk and say, Russian too? Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm joined by Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Jonathan, you know, I remember when I was a kid, there was a boy who lived across the street from me, and we used to send each other encrypted messages for fun. We would come up with some simple way to encode a, a simple phrase, and part of the fun was trying to figure out how the other person encoded the message, and we wouldn't make them too hard. It was just sort of a game we'd play to send messages back and forth, and I was thinking about that, and it got me thinking today, where obviously things are a lot more sophisticated, if someone presents you with with something that you know has been encrypted, but you don't know the method by which it was encrypted, how do you go about trying to figure out what was the method that was used to in, to encrypt a, a, a pile of data? Well, I think you can actually distinguish two uh, general classes uh, of encryption. So the first is where people are using some encryption scheme that's been uh, standardized and analyzed and is generally considered to be secure. And the second is where the people who are communicating are using an encryption scheme that they developed on their own, that they made up. And in, what was interesting is that in the first case, uh, the encryption algorithms that are used nowadays are meant to be secure, even if all the details of the algorithm are known. Uh, so the only uh, thing that they rely on for their security is the fact that the parties are using a, a key that uh, is unknown to uh, the eavesdropper. But revealing what method you're using for encryption doesn't undermine security at all. So if you have somebody maybe using uh, one of those encryption schemes, even if they, you know, so first of all, even if they tell you what they're using, it wouldn't impact security. And if they didn't tell you what they were using, you could guess from among a set of a relatively small number of possibilities, maybe 10 or 15 different possibilities of how they might have encrypted it, and then you can try attacking it with all 15. 
So then the interesting thing is, uh, if somebody comes up with their own algorithm, you might think that that gives them better security because the, the uh, eavesdropper wouldn't even know what method they're using. Uh, and it's sort of true, but the problem is that, in general, when people develop their own encryption schemes, kind of like you, you and your friend, uh, they tend to be easily breakable. Uh, and usually what you can do as an, as an analyst or as an eavesdropper is try to look for patterns uh, in the underlying data and then exploit those. So what, what kinds of patterns would you be looking for? Well, for example, a lot of encryption schemes that people come up with will have the property that when you repeat uh, letters or words in the, in the underlying message, then you'll see repeated letters or words in the, uh, in the ciphertext. So modern encryption schemes, secure encryption schemes don't have that property, but if you think about kind of the maybe, maybe historical encryption schemes that would work by substituting one letter for another or one phrase for another, uh, those would have that property. So if you get enough encrypted text, you can start looking for repeating blocks of letters and then try to use that to uh, figure out what, what the parties are communicating about underneath. All right, fun stuff. Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Chris Fogel, founder and executive advisor at Delta Risk, where he has more than 20 years of experience in the diverse areas of cybersecurity, emergency management, and contingency planning and operations. Mr. Fogel is presenting at the upcoming Cyber Texas Conference, and his topic is Perspectives on Cybersecurity for Boards and Business Executives. I spoke with him earlier this week. Do you think that, that boards are, are properly or adequately educating themselves when it comes to this stuff? I think they're making the they're making a very good effort. Just the fact that we get a lot of calls from boards uh, and, and we work with with several uh, tells me that the the they're not stupid. You don't you know you don't become a, a member of a of a large company's board because you don't know what you're talking about. One of the best things that is happening in the landscape today is that some of the details about these large data breaches are making them into reports and case studies. Board members read this, and they can picture themselves in that or, or their companies in that situation. In fact, that's what we encourage through our through our exercise processes is, you know, you don't have to invent some really unique data breach or, 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 or technical threat in order to have an effective exercise. Just go get the Wall Street Journal, um, any of the cyber breach uh, case studies that are put in there or news stories, plop it down on the, on the conference table in the boardroom and talk about it. When, when people can, can picture their own decision making in those cases or in those stories, and when they understand that, that a lot of the expense that comes from cyber attacks or cyber 
cyber breaches or data breaches is on the incident response side. So in other words, not being prepared, taking longer than it should have, not being able to contain it. Well, then they start to understand that, well, we have to be a little more proactive in our spending. And if we can prevent that, then we know based on these three or four case studies that we'll save billions of dollars or at least hundreds of thousands of dollars on the response side. I've heard it said that, uh, you know, IT people tend to speak in terms of things like threat levels of of red, yellow, and green, um, whereas boards, you know, want to talk in dollars and cents. And so there's that communications disconnect. But I've also heard that people have actually sort of been shifting around some of the positions within their companies, shifting around some of the C-level people to have people in positions to take responsibility to bridge that gap. Is, Is that something that you've seen? Yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, speaking with one of the large uh, financial institutions in Wall Street uh, about two weeks ago, I was surprised but uh, not totally unexpected that what they said was, you know what I really need is I need cyber guys that understand banking. Right. So I so that that told me right there that they were more interested in teaching their technical staffs on on the business than vice versa. Uh, And and again, I think that that's reasonable to expect. Right. The money, the investments uh, come from the boards, come from the C-suite decisions. uh, So they have to be processed in terms of the business. We are seeing that. I think it's a good thing. I I, I like the idea of of folks being. you know, moved around. I think the only position that I might um, not not really cringe, but uh, really question is when someone uh, becomes a CISO, a Chief Information Security Officer. I think that person has to have a good good grounding, a uh, good basis in cybersecurity, or they're going to be kind of ineffective leading a technical staff. I'm curious, what would be your advice to someone who's heading into a, a board-level position with a company that, uh, that has to deal with a lot of uh, cybersecurity type of issues? What, what would your advice be to someone like that? First of all, if you're if you're looking for your immediate feed or immediate payback on some investment, focus on your incident response capabilities. Again, that's where most of the dollars are spent when it comes to data breaches and cyber attacks. It's the inability or the unpreparedness uh, of a company to actually handle or contain the the event. And it's not just technical. This is this is how you communicate to the media. When do you make the notifications? Do you do you involve your outside counsel? So I would I would really encourage them to get smart on incident response uh, and and work with their uh, leadership and staff on different types of exercises or scenario, at least, least discussions. Uh, the second thing that I would tell them is don't be typical or normal uh, because right now in, in today's land, business landscape, typical or normal doesn't indicate that you're secure or that what you're doing is adequate. So you always have to strive for how can we do better um, and that's that's where a lot of the challenge comes, because in order to be better than normal, you have to spend money. And, and we understand that that is uh, that that is tough. Um, and then finally, I would say just just remember done is better than perfect. Um, there are there are no perfect solutions in cybersecurity. It doesn't matter what the vendors tell you. It doesn't matter what the consultants say. It's a it's a continual process uh, of understanding uh, where your critical assets are, what 
what is threatening them, what your risks are, uh, and are you mitigating to, to the latest evolution of the threat? You can, you can look for the best return on investment numbers before you can uh, make your investment and the only impact or the only outcome will be that you won't make the investment because it's not it's just not possible. So done is better than perfect. Do something um, and don't be satisfied with the status quo. That's Chris Fogel from Delta Risk. Mr. Fogel will be presenting on this topic at the upcoming Cyber Texas Conference in San Antonio, August 23rd and 24th. We've got more information about Cyber Texas in the events section of our website, thecyberwire.com. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.